Good evening, St. Barnabas. It's lovely to be with you. My name is Chris, as now said. I am uh, a final year ordinand. Um, if, you, if you heard that word earlier and you didn't understand what it meant, it means trainee vicar. So I'm um, at Theological College studying. There are a few of us dotted around the room. Uh, you can have uh, an extra chocolate if you can spot all of us by the end of the evening. Um, I'm finishing this year. In fact, it's just been announced that my curacy, which is like your apprentice vicar, you get spend three years training and then you spend three years sort of on the job learning. Um, it's going to be up in Leeds at St. Edmund's Roundhay, which is very exciting. Um, But tonight we continue in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. So if you've got a Bible, if you can find one, um, they're red and they're on the white tables or they're on your phone. Um, uh, We are in Matthew 5 verses 33 to 37. It's on page 969 in the furthest bottom right hand corner and it goes over to the next page. Wonderful. Uh, Give me an hallelujah when you get there. Great, that's one person. More than one. Wonderful. Let me read Matthew 5, 33 to 37. Again, this is Jesus speaking. Again, you have heard it said, you have heard that it was said, sorry, to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the oaths you have made. But I tell you, Do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Wonderful. Did you know in 2016, the word of the year was post-truth, which is technically two words joined by a hyphen, but it was post-truth. If you're wondering, in 2018, it was toxic. Uh, You think toxic masculinity and a whole bunch of stuff around that. Um, uh, In 2017, it was youthquake, because apparently a whole bunch of young people voted for Jeremy Corbyn, but they didn't actually, that wasn't true. But with the 2016 word, post-truth, came a whole slew of other words, fake news, alternate facts, um, a whole bunch of other words that meant, essentially, not true things. They're all different ways of describing truth and the modern and postmodern phenomenon of truth being relative. If you've read, ever, ever read uh, Derrida or um, uh, his friend um, uh, Loyard, they were all about how truth is actually relative and there is no meaning in anything and we give uh, meaning to things ourselves. All truth is our own truth and you each have a different truth and your truth is just as valid as my truth. But you think of Twitter and the buses in the run-up to the Brexit vote. Bold declarations of £350 million extra per week going to, the e, uh, going to the NHS rather than the EU. Or the promises of stability if you vote for me and not um, the other chap. Or um, this being the easiest negotiation in the history of the world because we will hold all the cards. Um, this is just in England, uh, but you think across the pond, um, uh, Mr. Trump declaring that his inauguration was the biggest in the history of everything. And we could keep on going. We think um, not so long ago, the MP for Peterborough, um, Fiona Onasanya, who lied about being the driver of a car, um, and she's just been sentenced to three months in prison. These are our elected officials lying. And we instinctively know that lying is wrong. We know we should tell the truth. We get the idea that it's bad to lie. 
It causes mistrust. We teach children to lie. And not, we don't teach children to lie. <laughs> we teach children not to lie. And we discipline them when they do. Um, I've got a little 17-month-old. He hasn't quite learned how to lie yet, so I haven't got there. But he will one day lie. And we, we lie a lot. Um, you've probably lied today. Um, yes, I've read the terms and conditions. No one's ever read the terms and conditions. Hello, how are you? Oh, I'm fine, thank you very much. Not often true. Uh, yes, dear, I'm on my way uh, when you haven't really left the house. Um, yes, dear, you look lovely in that. <laughs> Maybe we cut that bit out of the recording in case Rebecca listens back. Uh, yes, dear, I'm really looking forward to your parents coming to stay for the weekend. Um, or, oh, isn't your child delightful? Yes, it's wonderful when they uh, rub their snot on my leg. Just, you know, little, little lies. And we have a whole vocabulary around lying, don't we? To make it not as bad, we talk about being economical with the truth, or telling little white lies, or great whoppers, or small fibs, or bending the facts. But it's all still lies. It's all still not the truth. Because truth is important. Which brings us to the text in front of us, Matthew, Matthew 5, 33 to 37. The next part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' manifesto for life. The way God has and had intended for life to be lived. And we're in a little section called the Six Antithesis. Um, these are the bits where Jesus said, you have heard it said, and he says something, and then he says, but I say uh, to you, um, they are the six antithesis. And we started a little while back, last year, in fact, with um, uh, murder and anger, a couple of weeks, uh, and then Niall went on to lust and purity. James last week considered uh, adultery and divorce. And so tonight, we are on to oaths and swearing and lying and honesty and integrity and shame and power and manipulation and authenticity and truth. All that in six verses. So let's begin at the beginning and we'll go from there. Again, says Jesus in verse 33, you have heard it that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. Now, the interesting thing about this antithesis, if you find this sort of thing interesting, it'll be interesting, is that this quote, unlike all the other starts of Jesus' sayings in this bit, doesn't actually appear anywhere in the Old Testament as is written. The first half of this appears in Leviticus 19.12, and the second half appears in Numbers 32. And there's also a good chance Jesus is quoting uh, the ninth commandment, not to bear false witness, and there's also the possibility he's talking about not taking the Lord's name in vain, which is what swearing is. So there's a whole bunch of weight behind what Jesus has to say. You have heard it said... But I say to you, don't make an oath at all. To really get what Jesus is saying here, we need to understand what an oath is. Now, I looked in the dictionary, and this is an oath. An oath is an invocation of God or of some other sacred object to undergird a statement or promise, usually with an unsaid assumption that something bad would happen if you didn't fulfill your oath. Something along the lines of, I swear by God Almighty to always wear underpants. Or, honestly, the fish was this big, I swear to God. Now, the, the, the other thing to understand about oaths is that they were rather important in Jesus' day. They gave credence. They backed up your words. Take, for example, a business transaction. If I am going to buy a boat 2,000 years ago, uh, no, if I'm going to buy a boat, not 2,000 years ago, today, I might engage a boat builder to build me a boat. And I would pay him some money to do that. 
And we would need contract law to make sure that this happened. We would have to engage solicitors, there would be some paperwork, and we would sign a piece of paper saying, I have paid you um, some money, uh, and you will give me a boat within a decent amount of time. We would have a piece of paper with two signatures at the bottom spelling out what would happen if he didn't give me a boat. But 2,000 years ago, contract law didn't exist, and neither did paper. Parchment was expensive to make, not many new people knew how to read or write, so instead of a signed contract, an oath would be made to ensure I get my boat. The boat builder would swear by um, God Almighty that he would build my boat. That would give me the way of ensuring that it would happen. Another importance of oaths is that because there were no photos or security cameras, there was no way to prove that things had happened as they had without an oath existing. That's why uh, fishermen get to make up how big the fish is, because there are no security cameras um, near ponds or on the sea to show how big the, boat really was, uh, the fish really was. We see an example of this in Exodus 22. Um, it says this, when someone delivers to another a donkey, ox, sheep, or any other animal for safekeeping, and it dies or is injured or is carried off without anyone seeing it, you know, if, if this this animal has something bad happen to it and nobody's seen it, an oath before the Lord shall decide between the two of them that one has not laid hands on the property of the other. The owner shall accept the oath and no restitution shall be made. An oath is sworn to prove that what happened actually happened. So you would make an oath to ensure something would happen or to back up that something did happen. Oaths were important. And you would often swear it by God I swear to God Almighty. But most Jews were too afraid to even say or write God's name. Um, in fact, as a people, they generally didn't say it at all because it was considered too holy. So they might by, swear by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem because they were slightly less serious and they didn't use God's name. Or you might even swear by your own head. And even the phrasing of your oath mattered you could swear by Jerusalem, or you could swear towards Jerusalem. You could swear by the temple, or you could swear by all the gold in the temple. You could swear by the altar, or you could swear by the gift on the altar. And now it was a common practice that if you swore towards Jerusalem rather than by Jerusalem, you didn't have to fulfill your oath. If you swore by the altar and not by the gift on the altar, you didn't have to fulfill your oath. If you swore by the gold in the temple and not by the temple, you didn't have to fulfill your oath. It's a bit like when you're a kid and you said something, but you went, aha, I had my fingers crossed, I don't actually have to do it. It's a way of weaseling out of your promise, a way of living dishonestly and without integrity. Because you see, oaths wouldn't have to exist if lying didn't exist. Oaths exist because lies exist. If nobody lied, then there would be no need to convince anyone that your statement was true, because there was no opportunity for your statement to be untrue. It's like Ricky Gervais's awful film, The Invention of Lying, where nobody can tell a lie and he somehow tells the first lie. 
and he lives as this sort of prophet and he gets whatever he wants, usually involving his desire towards women and he lies to them to get them to sleep with him. Um, I'm not a big fan of Ricky Gervais and this is one of his worst films. Uh, that's an aside. But you see, God's intention was for there not to be a need to lie. We were to exist in complete honesty. But sin and dishonesty entered the world through Adam and Eve, and so we do not exist in truth and honesty. We exist with lies and deceit and corruption. The only reason that oaths need to be made is because lying exists, because sin exists. Lying should not exist, but it does. And when the kingdom of God is fully realized on earth as it is in heaven, lying will not exist. So this is why Jesus outlaws making oaths, because he is giving his kingdom manifesto. He is describing what heaven looks like, and in heaven, when the kingdom of God comes, there will be no lying. And in the same way that Jesus relocates and expands the thing he's on about in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, for example, when he's talking about not murdering, he's actually talking about hating in your heart. Here he is expanding and relocating the focus of this teaching. He turns these things from tick-bock exercises, making oaths or not making oaths, into matters of the heart. He instructs people not to swear by Jerusalem or by heaven or by earth because it is God's throne and his footstool and the king's throne, king's palace, sorry. It's all God's. And by inference, he instructs them not to swear by their own head because God made everyone. It is still God's. Jesus is saying it doesn't matter what you swear by, it's all God's cross my heart and hope to die. My heart is still God's. Swear on my mother's grave, it's all God's. Whatever you swear by, it's all God's. And there should be no need to tell an oath because you should not tell a lie. But it's bigger than what you swear by. This true and false and uh, oaths and swearing is not really about swearing, it's about truthfulness. As Jesus goes on to say, our yes should be yes, um, and our no should be no. Our word should be our bond, because it's all God's, and God in his omniscience, in his, that is his ability to be everywhere, is everywhere. There is nowhere where you can be and speak, and God is not there already. You are always in his presence. And so whenever you say something that you intend not to keep, you are saying that in the presence of God. And he knows when you're being dishonest. Because truthfulness is incredibly important to God. We read in Psalm 24 that God doesn't like people who swear deceitfully. Um, let me read Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? Those who have clean hands and pure hearts, who do not lift up their souls to what is false, and who do not swear deceitfully. You can't ascend the hill of the Lord. You can't come into God's presence if you have sworn deceitfully, if you have lied. It precludes you from God's presence. But it's not just 
that it precludes you from God's presence, and not just that lying and swearing deceitfully keeps you out of God's presence. Jesus claims to be the truth. He claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life in John 14, verse 6. He said at his trial with Pontius Pilate, for this I was born and for this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Later in, uh, earlier, sorry, in John 8, verse 32, he said in discussion with some Jews, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. When we lie, we are not in the truth. We are not in freedom. Jesus claimed to be the truth, to offer truth, to embody truth. And if we are the people of Jesus, Christians, literally little Christs, the church, then we should embody the truth as well. We should embody truth. We should be people of the truth. And this will not only affect how we speak, but how we think and act. And so how does this stuff hit the road? It means not flaking out. If you say you're going to be at your community evening, be there. Don't text five minutes to go and flake out. Live up to your word. Make it to the dinner that you sort of don't want to go to, but you've already said yes to. Don't send a text and flake out. Live up to your word. Go to that coffee. Attend that prayer meeting. Really mean it when you say you should come around for dinner and offer that invitation more. Really mean it and follow through when you say, I should join a Barnabas community. And I'm aware that stuff comes up. The car breaks down. The extra um, bit of work plops on your desk from your boss at five minutes to five. And you suddenly can't make it. But don't send a text, because it's easy to lie by text. Make a phone call. It's much harder to lie when you're talking to someone. Use your phone for what it was invented for. Secondly, be on time. If you say you'll be there at seven, be there at seven. Don't waste someone else's time and by inference lie by being 15 minutes late. And yes, there's grace. There's grace in all of this. This is ideal. This is what we aspire to be. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be able to uh, honor our word and other people. And thirdly, speak only the truth. Don't get involved in the office gossip or rumor mill. Don't repeat things unless you know they are true. It's easy uh, for something that's untrue to go around quickly. Um, and this might impact your work as well. If you're in sales, not lying to a potential uh, client or customer, I used to work in a clothes shop called Jules, and most of my job was lying to middle-class, middle-aged women. Yes, madam, you look delightful in that. No, of course not. It looks wonderful. It's not too young for you. You should definitely buy it. I was very good at it, which isn't a good thing. Um, finally, commit. One of the things about oaths was that they were a way of not fully committing. You could say, I swear by the temple, but not by the gold in the temple, and you weren't committed. But rather than being flaky and non-committal, commit. If you consider this your church, then actually commit to this church. Tithe your money. Give your time to serve on a team. 
Danny would love to hear from you if you have a heart for children. Jess would love to hear from you if you have a heart for young people. James would love to hear from you if you like pouring coffee. And Matt would love to hear from you if you can sing or push a button on a computer. Commit to this community and serve it. Because otherwise, you're not fulfilling your word. If you claim the title Christian, then live the authentic Christian life. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Live by your word. Commit. Don't lie. Now, as good and true as all this stuff is, it sounds a bit like moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism goes a little bit like this. God likes nice people, and nice people don't lie, and they commit to things. So don't lie or break your commitments, otherwise God won't like you, and you'll feel bad because of this. Moralistic, getting your behavior right. Therapeutic, making you feel better because God is scary, essentially. That's what moralistic therapeutic deism is. I've just given you a whole bunch of shoulds and oughts and musts. Now, don't hear me saying you shouldn't do these things because you absolutely should, and it's what an authentic Christian life looks like. But it's not the driver. And to really understand why lying and not committing is so bad, we need to get to the core of lying. Why do we lie in the first place? We lie to manipulate, to gain power over others, or to project a false image of ourselves because we feel insecure. And these all boil down to the same core issue. We lie to hide our shame. The feeling that we are inadequate at something, in some way, and we don't want this shame to be exposed, and we don't want to face public humiliation. We lie because of shame, and a deep sense of shame. You catch this glimpse right at the end of this passage. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Anything other than the truth comes from the evil one, the Satan, the devil, this is how Jesus describes him. Jesus is arguing with some Pharisees and he says this, you are from your father the devil and you choose to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks according to his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. The enemy the evil one is the father of lies. And to really understand where lies come from, we need to go right back to the beginning of everything, to the garden, to Genesis, to Adam and Eve having been created, however you want to interpret that, to Adam and Eve having been created and living in the garden with all absolute freedom, apart from the fact that they can't eat of one tree. And they're naked, and they don't feel ashamed. Genesis 2.25. But what happens? A conversation between Eve and the snake. This is what it says in Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say, You shall not eat from any tree in the garden? 
Did you see it? Did you hear it? That was the first lie ever told. The snake takes God's words, eat from any tree except this one, and turns it into, did he say you shall not eat of any tree? He distorts it. He tells the first lie. And then he tells the second lie. He tells Eve, completely contra to God's word, that she will not die if she eats the fruit. This time not just distorting God's word, but saying the exact opposite. Satan is the father of lies. All lies come from Satan. Lies are at the very core of what corrupts and destroys and causes shame and causes sin. The story in Genesis goes on. Adam and Eve eat the fruit and they realize they are naked and they feel shame. And the shame causes them to hide from God. They believe the lie, felt ashamed and vulnerable and hid from God. Because of the lie that Satan had given them, they felt shame. And the shame not only destroyed the relationship they had with God, but it also destroyed the relationship they had with each other. The thing is, we don't want anybody to know our shame. We don't want anybody to know the thing that makes us go, if only they knew they wouldn't like me. If only they knew they wouldn't look at me the same. If only they knew they would think worse of me. If only they knew what I'd done. If only they knew what I'd said or thought. If only they knew what had happened to me. If only they knew what I was really like. The stuff that you fill in there, that is your shame. That is the thing that you do not want to come out into public because you will feel humiliated and vulnerable. And that is a hard place to be in. So we hide it, we push it away, we ignore it. We put a full self on it, a mask, a way of pretending that it's not there. And this mask is the lies, the yes, I'm fine, thanks. We lie to hide our shame, to hide our vulnerabilities. We feel like a fraud and we feel like we don't belong. And maybe this is particularly pervasive in Cambridge, a city full of geniuses. Maybe you don't feel clever enough to be at university. If only you knew how unclever I was. And so you lie about something else to mask your perceived inadequacy. Or maybe you've got a job recently and you feel like a fraud. You have no idea what you're doing and you're not very good at it anyway. And you're worried that your bosses will find out and fire you. So you lie about your performance to your boss, to your colleagues. You pretend at home and at church that everything is going fine and it's great and I'm really enjoying it. Or it can feel like that in church, can't it? We're all shiny, happy people, looking lovely. And if you don't feel very shiny or happy or lovely, it's difficult to be here. So you lie about how you're doing. Yes, I'm fine. To mask your real state. 
or someone has spoken words that are untrue over you, and you have believed the lie. You have believed that you are worthless, or not wanted, that you're ugly, or useless. I have in the past spoken all those words over my sister because of a deep shame that took actually um, a good while in counseling to unearth. I was quite bullied at school. People had spoken nasty words over me. I felt ashamed about this. And so out of this shame, the only other person in my life who I could take it out on was my sister. Lies cause shame. We lie because we feel shame. We lie because we feel vulnerable. We lie because something is burrowed in at the core of our purpose, value, and identity and corrupted it. Now the truth is, we don't have to lie because we don't need to be ashamed. We don't have to worry about being vulnerable. We don't need to allow shame to dominate our lives because Jesus took our shame on the cross. Jesus took our shame on the cross. It has been dealt with. On the cross, Jesus takes the death that we deserved when Adam and Eve ate the fruit. Jesus on the cross suffered the most shameful and the most humiliating death imaginable. Naked, strung up for all to see in public, his mother watching on, declared a criminal by the greatest power of the day, abandoned by his friends. The Messiah project that he'd been working on for the last three years apparently failed, slowly breathing out his last, gasping for breath, taunted by the crowds, mocked by the soldiers, and even the other criminals dying with him. There, on that cross of shame, he took your shame. It was nailed to him. Your shame and my shame on the cross, dealt with. And on the cross, he turns your identity from being broken and shameful to being an adopted child of God. He turns your value from worthless to priceless. He turns your purpose from destruction to that of citizen of heaven. And not only does he do that, but he defeats the father of lies on the cross. He defeats Satan. On the cross, Jesus won the decisive battle against the enemy to dethrone him in the war that will come to its conclusion when Jesus returns and God's kingdom is fully established on earth. There will be no lies, no shame in heaven. Jesus takes your shame and destroys it, sets you free from it, sets you free from the lies that put you under the shame in the first place. You are free from shame if you are in Jesus. He takes you out of your shame pit and puts you in a spacious place of freedom and honesty and safety and security. He restores us to how we were intended to be, in right relationship with God and in right relationship with one another, so that God could walk with us in the cool of the day and we would walk unashamed with him. Jesus takes our shame.
So tonight, if you're feeling shame, give it to Jesus. The thing about shame is that it thrives in the darkness when we ignore it in the dungeon and the basement of our lives with the door locked. And the way that we deal with it is the way that it doesn't want to be dealt with, and that's by bringing it out into the open. Because we are secure in Jesus. We can look our shame in the eye and say, you have no power over me. You have no power over me. You have been defeated by Jesus. And this means telling someone, which is the hardest bit, and the bit that will lock it back up when you go, no, I couldn't tell anyone. The way we defeat shame is by bringing it out into the open, telling someone we trust, inviting Jesus in for forgiveness. If you're feeling like God could never accept you for what you've said or done or thought or experienced or had done to you, know that he has already dealt with it. You might be thinking, you have no idea what it is, Chris. You have no idea how big it is. Jesus has already dealt with it. Jesus has already dealt with your shame. So tonight, as I close, and the band, do you want to come out? Come and live in the truth. Not your own truth, like so many self-help books, but live in Jesus' truth about you. Jesus' truth about your identity, about your value, and about your purpose. Come and experience how he sees and understands you, truly. Come and receive forgiveness for lies, motivation for commitment, and freedom from shame. Do you want to stand and I'll pray?